So when you share your story, I don't know what it's like to be a mother. I don't know what it's like to, you know, if we go into the depths of your story or my story, they're going to be very different in terms of the content of them, in terms of the experience of them. But what we get down to when we really get to that vulnerable human place, we get down to some basic human emotions. We all know what it feels like to feel joy and pain. We know what it's like to feel gratitude and sorrow. We know what it feels like to feel excitement and rage. We can actually relate to each other at a really deep and human and emotional level, even if we have very different experiences. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 342 with guest Mike Robbins. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. I have such a great conversation to share with you today with our guest, Mike. I had a set of questions ready for him to ask him, and then we kind of went off on this different side conversation, which felt super right and organic, so we both just ran with it, and I really do think that you're going to enjoy it. I'm also pumped because next week, hopefully it'll be ready by then, but I have a conversation about shit that matters with unqualified people. I'm excited to bring you that. I haven't brought you one of those for a minute, and I'm actually calling it conversation about shit that matters with a qualified person and an unqualified person, me being the unqualified person that's going to be sharing on that particular episode. And I also wanted to let you know that if you are feeling like you need some extra support right now, we do have some coaching options for you and some spots available. So our life coaching is at yourkickasslife.com slash coaching. And if you are a life coach and you would like some help in your particular life coaching business, head over to yourkickasslife.com slash consulting to read about about how we can help you over there. All right, for those of you that don't know him, let me tell you a little bit about Mike. Mike Robbins is the author of five books, including Bring Your Whole Self to Work and We're All in This Together. He's a former pro baseball player whose playing career ended due to an injury. For the past 20 years, he's been a sought-after motivational speaker who delivers keynotes and seminars for some of the top companies in the world. His clients include Google, Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Schwab, eBay, and the Oakland A's. He and his work have been featured in the New York Times, Fast Company, and the Wall Street Journal, as well as on ABC News and NPR. He's a regular contributor to Forbes, and his books have been translated into 15 different languages. So without further ado, here is Mike. Mike Robbins, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I am so glad that our paths have crossed. You and I have been chatting for 16 minutes now, and <laughs> I interrupted you and said, we need, to, we need to start recording this because we're having a, a great conversation. Full yes. transparency, we are recording this on June 2nd, 2020, yep. and there are some big, big things happening here. So if you're listening to this far in the future, um, I, I hope things you know, talk, speaking, speaking to our future selves, I hope things yeah. get better. And let's start with your book. I do want to talk about it. You wrote a book called We're All in This Together. Yeah. And 
tell me like, where did you come up with the idea for it? When was this? And like kind of what was happening around you that you knew that this book needed to be written? Well, you know, so here's the thing. So, I mean, I've been doing this work for 20 years. This is my fifth book. I love the work. I love talking to you right now. I don't love to write. And I really actually don't love to write books. It's very hard for me personally. I'm an extrovert. I really like being with people. I like having conversations. To sit in a room and write is not my favorite thing. And even five books in, I'm just... So that's just a little bit of my own sort of journey with it. When I got done with my last book, came out in 2018, it's called Bring Your Whole Self to Work. I was good. I was done. I said to Michelle, my wife, like, I'm good. Like five Mm -hmm. years, I don't need to write another book. And then like three weeks later, I had this download that I could not ignore. And it wouldn't leave me alone. That was like, you have to write another book. It has to come out in 2020. And it's got to be called, we're all in this together. And I was like, if you'd seen me walking down the street, you would have thought I was a crazy person, like looking up at the sky saying, leave me alone. Like go find someone else to bug. You even felt your intuition telling you that it needed to come out in 2020? Yes. It has to come out before before the election. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be called, we're all in this together. And it was kind of in a practical sense. You know, I do a lot of work in the corporate world with teams and with leaders and focused on culture. And in a practical sense, I knew the book was going to be about that work and about, you know, coming together and working as a team. But there was specifically a piece in the book that like, you need to talk more openly and directly about inclusion, about diversity, about belonging. And also the country is so divided and there's so much us and them energy and it's getting worse, not better. Your job. And so much of my work is really about how do we find common ground and come together your job is to write this book. And, and very specifically, I've been giving a speech and, and delivering a program for the last 20 years called The Keys to Creating a Championship Team because I'm a former athlete and I reference that a lot in my work. But it was very clear the message that I got from my intuition was like, it's supposed to be called We're All in This Together because that's a phrase I'd started to use myself in a lot of my own writing and posting about some of the division and intensity in our country over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And it just was really strong. And then here's what happened. I pitched it to my agent. I pitched it to my publisher and my own personal editor. And everybody was totally into the book. None of them liked the title. They were like, we love the book. We don't like the title. Hmm. And I was like, not I'm not, about it. they just thought they didn't, what does that mean? And it's a little weird and it's a little soft and it's a little naive. And it was like, they had all these opinions and judgments about it. And I was like, I hear you and I'm not writing it unless it's called we're all in this together. I'll mm-hmm. I'll wait or someone else can I don't know. I'm just yeah. like that was the title was as important if not more important to me than the book. I was like cuz I want to be having a conversation in 2020 when I'm assuming the country's going to be incredibly divided and it's going to be gnarly. I want to be having a conversation about how we're all in this together even though as I was saying it at the time I was realizing and I realize it even more now that the book's out and we're dealing with everything we're dealing with we're not actually all in this together. <laughs> right. So well, say more about that. Cause that was, that was my next question, you know, cause you weren't expecting what was going to happen with COVID. And right. I think that's when we really started to hear the phrase, we're actually yep. not all in this together. So can you say what your thoughts are about that? Well, it started to come out that people started saying it as a phrase. Cause like, Hey, we're in this thing together. There's this big crisis. We got to come together. And while I think the sentiment of it is true, I think the reality of it is not at all true. And the, right. the, you know, most people listening probably saw a few months back that started to go around on social and other places, this notion of, hey, we're not in the same boat, but we're in the same storm mm-hmm. and we're in different boats. And, and even though that's just a cliche or a metaphor, I think it actually is really an appropriate one because at some level, 
it's we're in, having very different experiences, whether we're black or white, whether we're affluent or not, whether we work in a certain industry or not. And in some cases, it is somewhat random. And in other cases, it's been systematically set up that way, that my experience as a straight white man in my home in Marin County in Northern California is very different than yours or than anybody's, anyone listening, depending on the circumstances of your life. And so to realize that even when something like a global pandemic happens that is impacting the entire world, it impacts each of us in different ways. And how can we simultaneously feel that interconnection that we all have because we are dealing with this same circumstance, which has never happened in our lifetime that we're all dealing with an external circumstance like this, but then to realize, oh, the manifestation of it is very different. And how do we pay more attention to the difference and at the same time still feel that sense of unity? It's one of the paradoxes of life that I think is important for us to try to understand and, and to embody mm-hmm. is that we're incredibly different and diverse. And how do we learn more about and understand and appreciate the differences and how that impacts us? And simultaneously as human beings, there is this commonality that we have. And I don't mean it to sound uh, overly naive or Pollyanna, but it's like that paradox exists. And I think through this experience, we're now seeing it in an even more intense way. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, you mentioned that here in the US, especially where you and I are both from, we are very divided. I think divided Mm -hmm. even more so now than we were even four years ago in 2016. Yeah. Do you feel like your book speaks to that? And so tell us how. Yeah, about how divided we are. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I do in, in a way. I mean, I think the way I come at it, again, there's two levels. There's the level of just the practical reality of, you know, I'm working with a team at Google or I'm working at a team at Wells Fargo or I'm, I'm working with these corporate teams, which is a lot of what I do. And if we take it just at that sort of more micro level and not so much the macro level of the country and the world, it's like, we all see this as human beings. And it's like, you know, this group and that group aren't talking to each other or they're not getting along or the, you know, the New York office thinks they're better than the San Francisco office or the marketing team thinks they're better than the legal team or, you know, I mean, just human beings being Mm -hmm. human beings and watching that play out and going, wait a second. Um, why is that happening or how is that? that I'm going to stop you for a second. Does that, it's been a long time since I've worked in an office. Does that happen in every company? Just about, I mean, it takes, look, it's more the exception than the rule that that doesn't happen, but there's some sense. And I think again, it's this deep desire that we have. Ironically, we want to belong so much that Mm -hmm. sometimes we choose the, the easy route of belonging, which is that you and I can decide we're aligned, but we hate or disagree with, or think that those, whoever they are, they're wrong, they're bad, and we're right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sad thing about that is, again, we end up damaging ourselves and ultimately the group that we're a part of because it just doesn't work. And we've all had that. It happens in families, right? It happens. And, and, and so there's that piece of just the human experience. And then you sort of extrapolate that out to the country in which we live. And again, this didn't start in 2016. This didn't Mm -hmm. start with Donald Trump. This like, this has been part of the American experience the entire time we've been a country. And then long before the United States of America, I mean, division and separation and disconnection is part of the human experience. I think, you know, part of my sort of how I grew up and 
where I'm from and the way that I sort of look at the world was informed a lot in a way. And again, I, so I'm white, I'm straight, I'm male, but I, I grew up raised by a single mom who was a hardcore feminist who was very angry with my father and my dad left when I was three and really let us down. And I had an older sister who I just sort of was infused with some thoughts and ideas at a very young age. Like my mom pulled me out of school at 10 years old to go see Geraldine Ferraro speak in front of Oakland City Hall because she was running for vice president. And my mom knew this is important. You need to see this and learn this. And she talked about, you know, in my house, it was like she talked about Susan B. Anthony. She talked about Gloria Steinem and Billie Jean King and these women that were just, she talked about Rosa Parks. She talked about these women in a way that I didn't realize that that was a big deal. It was mm -hmm. just the way my mother spoke. And then I go to school and I'm in school. And by the time I'm in junior high and high school, the majority of the kids I'm in junior high and high school with are African-American and African-American culture is infused in everything that I know and I do, but I'm not black. So it's like, I know I'm different, but, and again, I didn't realize that this experience was unique and it was challenging at times, but then I went off to college and I went to Stanford, which is only 45 minutes from where I grew up. And people would call me, my friends would call me and say, what's it like at Stanford? And I'd say, well, it's really different. It's, it's interesting. It's, but I've never been around this many white people before. Mm -hmm. And that was the honest truth. And I didn't feel like I connected with and fit in with a lot of these white kids I was in college with, even though we looked the same. But then back at home, I spent most of my adolescent years trying really hard to sort of figure out where I fit and how I could connect socially um, so I say all of that because what that gave me at a, at a very young age was a sense of difference and a sense of impact of racism and sexism, if you will. But at the same time, the more I got to know people and would listen to people who were different than me, again, just my you know 15-year-old self was like, I get that we're really different, but at the same time, like we're also oddly similar mm -hmm. and trying to reconcile both the difference and the similarity at the same time. And I feel like most of my life and most of my work has been in some ways, even though honestly, I've been scared to talk about a lot of this stuff directly for a number of years. Cause like, who wants to hear a white guy talk about race? Who wants to hear a man talk about gender? Like, that's Especially disrespectful. Like a, you know, a cisgendered, straight, privileged white man. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and even to even the whole notion of privilege and white privilege, like it took me a while to really grok that because when people would say, I mean, I'm going around, you know, the country and saying, you know, be yourself, bring your whole self to work. And people would say, yeah, it's easy for you, man. You're white, you're straight, yeah. you're male, you're cisgendered, you have all of these privileges. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, when people would first call me privileged, I'm thinking, do you know where I grew up? Do you know what the house looked like I grew up in? Do you know the kind of shit we had to deal with? And But then I realized it took me a while because I got defensive about it. I thought privilege meant you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Like I went to college, literally the kid who sat next to me at graduation at Stanford was a Rockefeller, like a <gasps> real Rockefeller. I'm not kidding. Like to me, that's privilege. Right? Like shit money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and so, you know what I mean? But then it was like, oh my God, wait a second. Right. And, and I think back to like a conversation I had with my friend, Sean, my senior year in high school, Skyline High School in Oakland. It was the year of the Rodney King riots in LA. Mm -hmm. the, the verdict came out that spring and people were beside themselves in the same way we've, we've seen or we saw, you know, with George Floyd. It, it, similar, the only other time in my life I remember feeling the way that I felt is back then in 92. And, and at, 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 I'm a senior in high school. I'm the senior class president. I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I'm like a popular kid. Everybody knew me and liked me. I was, I mean, I got, this was one of the highest compliments you could get as a white kid growing up 
in Oakland is, Hey Mike, you're pretty cool for a white boy. Like, and when that happened, so many of my African-American friends were so angry and they were angry and, and like angry with me. And it wasn't personal, but I was remember having a conversation with my friend, Sean, I don't understand. I don't understand. I'm mad too. Like I'm, I'm just, I can't believe this happened. And Sean says to me, Mike, what did your mom teach you about the police? Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean? He said, your mom raised you. You grew up here in Oakland, just like me. What did your mom teach you about the police? And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't remember. I mean, I guess like listen to the police. Like don't. And there's be, your answer, right? That she didn't like, have I, to teach you anything. But she may, you know, and I said, he said, and I basically was like, just listen to the cops or whatever. He goes, yeah, that's not what I got taught, man. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, every single black person, especially growing up here in a place like Oakland, you get the talk when you're really young. Do you know about the talk, Mike? And I was like, uh, no. He's like, yeah, the talk about how to interact with the police and how to keep yourself safe, that not all the police are on your side. And when he broke that down for me and I was 18 years old, I just was like, oh my God, here's my friend, Sean, my teammate, my friend, my classmate, my brother. And I was like, wow, we're growing up in the same city, in the same school, in the same environment, very different experiences. And it was a super humbling, but really important lesson for me at that moment in my life that... Mm -hmm. I think about that a lot now, back to the privilege conversation, it's realizing like, oh my God, I have all of these privileges that doesn't mean I have never struggled or I've never had challenges, right? 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 But it's like, and talking to men, it's like, you know, I don't, I mean, any man that I've ever had an honest conversation with, do you think your life would be easier if you were female? No, of course not. Do you know what I mean? But guys don't really have that conversation with each other. It's like, you know what would make they my life way easier? That question. Yeah. Yeah. No, because we don't have like we don't have to think about our gender. Just like as white people, we don't have to think about our race. Part of what's uncomfortable about confronting white privilege and white supremacy is that white people, we have to stop and think about our race. And it's like, you know, I love Robin DiAngelo's book, White White Fragility. She's like, look, it, the, one of the things I took away from that book, she said that basically for many white people, even well-intentioned liberal progressive white Mm -hmm. people, the fear or the accusation of racism, being called racist, is almost seen as worse as actual racism. Like, how dare you call me racist? It's like, hold on a second. We're all benefiting from a institutionally racist society, and we don't want to call it out because we think of racism in our mind as like, clan members right. or people using the N-word. It's like, yeah, that's racism, but that's an extreme, but there's racism that happens all over the place. And something else that's just recently happened as you and I are recording this is like the woman in Central Park, right? Who Amy Cooper. Mm-hmm. Amy Cooper, the liberal progressive donating to Barack Obama, voting for Hillary Clinton, white woman who says, I'm going to call, who calls the police and says a black man is threatening my life because the, the guy told her to put her- Impulse knee-jerk reaction. Right. Mm-hmm. And she knew exactly what she was doing yeah. and knew exactly what that meant because he said, put your dog on a leash. I mean, he like put her in her place. Yeah. He told her to follow the rules. It's deep. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I appreciate, I appreciate you, you going so deep into that and it's, it's messy and complicated. And yes. I personally feel, you know, in, in the back of my head, as you're saying all this and, you know, I'm nodding and, and hoping that it's helpful for people, but then I'm like, <laughs> are we over here? to white people, are we centering whiteness? Are we, right. you know, like, and, and the answer I think is yes, we are. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I made a commitment to have these conversations because I know that the majority of my audience is white and, you know, it's, I've, I've heard there's controversy even over Barbara D'Angelo's book, um, 
White Fragility, which I've read and I think it's great. And I, I recommend it to people because the argument is like she's profiting off of, off of this topic. And she shouldn't be. Or if she is going to write the book, she should donate all the profits to Black Lives Matter or other organizations. And what are your thoughts and feelings about this? And I almost like, I almost, and I'm like, should I be asking that question? Like, and anyway, yeah. I just wanted to be transparent because I, I often think out loud. <laughs> over yeah. Here. Well, you, you and me both. Look, I, I, I don't know, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, I come back again. I, I mean, I filter things for better or worse through my own experience. And I remember Look, I think the notion of allyship and how do we, you know, how, how can white people be allies to African-Americans, to people of color? How can men be allies to women? Um, I think those are really important conversations. And I think a lot of us, I'll put just for myself, even though I feel like I've been paying attention to this for a lot of my life, the concept of the notion of how to be an ally is still relatively new. And I still screw it up all the time. Yeah. And I still talk too much and don't listen enough. And I still, right. And so again, part of white privilege, part of male privilege. Well, I have something to say. Let me tell you what it is. As let opposed me interrupt to, you. <laughs> right. Right. And it's, it's, you know, someone said to me, this is related, but unrelated a few years ago. And I speak out in the world a lot. I mean, not during the, the pandemic, but they said, watch when you're speaking to a group of people, even if it's a really diverse group, notice that when you ask for questions or does anyone have any questions, almost always the first hand that goes up or, and, or the first person you usually call on is a straight white man. And I was like, no, come on, that's ridiculous. And then I started paying attention and I was like, oh my God, it wasn't every time, but damn near every time. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And it wasn't this like completely overt, arrogant, like I'm going to dominate the room. I mean, that would happen sometimes, but it was more just the like, of course, you're going to call on me. I have something to say and the world is oriented around me. So therefore, mm -hmm. and you know, so back to your question about Robin D'Angelo, like I do think it's oh, tricky Robin for you. I made a mistake. It's not Barbara D'Angelo. My bad. Right. Okay. Please continue. I, I do think, I do think that um, and there is a woman, uh, Barbara D'Angelis, who's great, who talks about relationships and such. But, okay, maybe but that's Rob, Robin, Robin D'Angelo is right. But I think, look, is there value and is there importance in you and I as two white people talking about race? I do think so. Mm -hmm. Is there an importance of, of Robin D'Angelo who's studied this for years? I, I personally feel like there are, my judgment is that there are a lot of white people who have such a hard time with this conversation that one of the things that's possible for us to do as white people who are interested in this is to have conversations that other white people can listen to and also talk to each other as white people. Um, because it, th this stuff is vulnerable and scary and messy and confusing. And I think, again, being careful and mindful of not wanting to profit off of things or not wanting to um, co-opt certain things. And now it's become, you know, it's like, look, these things, I think about businesses. I took, we took our girls to the gay pride parade in San Francisco last summer. And I hadn't been to pride in years. I used to live in San Francisco. We live, you know, in the burbs now. And, and the pride parade used to be, at least in my experience, it was great, but it was a little intense and kind of over the top. Mm -hmm. And when our girls were younger, and Michelle and I were for children. Yeah. <laughs> right. And we were like, it's not age, but we felt like, okay, my, my, my half sister was in town and we're like, let's go check it out. And we go and it's way more tame. At least the parade was. And I was like, oh, okay, it's a little different than I remember. And there were all of these corporations were marching in the parade, which I was simultaneously super inspired by. But then the cynical part of me was like, 
Well, now it's become trendy. It's become cool. It's become like, hey, we want to market to the gay community. So therefore, we have to march in pride because they know we're down with the cause. And then it's like, oh, are these things getting co-opted? And at the end of the day, I kind of come back to like, I don't know what people's motivations are necessarily, but I would rather have a bunch of corporations with, you know, gay pride flags on their t-shirts marching in the parade than not. I would rather have, I don't want white people profiting off of the work of others per se, but I think it's important that we're having this conversation. So it's more important that Robin D'Angelo writes for a book and that everyone's reading it and it's a bestseller and people are talking about it because that's helping the conversation. If we want to have a whole debate on what should she do with the money that she makes from the book, I mean, okay. But to me, it's like, is it coming from, when I listen to her and I read her and I watch her, I feel like it's coming from a pure place and I've learned from her. And I also think it is important for us. And this is coming out even more now. Like there's a book that everyone's talking about now called how to be an anti-racist. I can't even remember the author's name, but it's an African-American and more and more the conversation is moving to let's really lift up the voices of black people and people of color who have this lived experience and who know of these things and let's shut up more and listen more. I I agree. And I think that I have so many things to say based on what you just said, but I, I think that it can't just be like, you don't get to check off the box. Well, really ever. And I want to talk about that too. But if you read Robin DiAngelo's book, like that can't just be it. It, it no. can't. I I think that what was interesting is when, um, did you ever see the documentary? I think Jennifer Newsom, she's Gavin Newsom's wife, mm-hmm. did misrepresentation back in yeah. like 2010. Yeah. And then she did, is it the mask you live in? The mask we live in? Yeah. Okay. I I heard an interview with her and she said that when she was on tour promoting that documentary, that a lot of people asked her, where is the, 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 I guess there was a coach. I don't remember his name who was, who was um, in a lot of that documentary. We want to hear from a lot of the men were saying to her, we want to hear from him. We don't want to hear from you. Liz Plank wrote a book called for the love of men. And it's about, you know, dismantling misogyny. And there's a lot of Amazon reviews over there from men saying, I don't want you talking about this. We want to hear yes. from men. And some yes. of them are pretty hateful and vitriolic. But yes. it's, it's it my point is is that I think that when people are just starting out in this journey and their eyes are opening up and they have they're all up in their white feelings about it, I think <laughs> it can the entry point can be good if they hear it from a white person. I have a lot of white women in my Facebook community. I mean, these are like local moms who, you know, we live in the rural South and they're like, Hey, I've heard you talking about this. Like, what do I do? And so I'm telling them like, here's the books you need to read. You need to talk to your husband. You need to talk to your children. And, um, you know, they would never probably, or maybe they would demand the, and I also don't think that like, they should be asking the, the, the black women in our community, like, Black women in our community are hurting right now on June 2nd, 2020. They're hurting and they do not need to be asked to do all of this labor. And it's, it's, um, anyway, so I, I, that was my one point. And well, I think, look, first of all, all of, um, Jennifer Siebel Newsom's films, I think are, you know, Jen and I actually were classmates in college and, um, and I think misrepresentation of the mask you live in. There's a, there's a man in the mask you live in named Ashanti Branch who has an organization in Oakland called the Ever Forward Club. And I also happen to know Ashanti. And it's like, to your point, I think we have to use what we can to speak to the people we can speak to who are going to resonate. There are conversations that need to happen white people to white people. There's conversations that need to happen woman to woman. There's conversations that need to happen man to man 
and all the all the way around. And that goes back to again, without being corny about it, without being naive about it, this is where I come back to we're all in this together. I don't mean we're all in this together like we all have the same experience and I know what your experience is like, because I don't. But I mean we're all in this together in the sense that like we're part of this larger community. And so the question that I, I think of this as a former athlete, like with, with a team, the best teams that I was ever on, and I played baseball for years and it's kind of a weird sport. And it's, there's a lot of individual activity that goes on on a baseball team. But I literally, I played in college and I played professionally before I got injured. Like this was my life from the age of seven until I was 25. That's what I did. And whenever I was on a great team and I was only on a few and the team wasn't great because we had great players. I mean, it helped if we had some talent. It was great because we all bought into, we're all going to do everything we can to help each other and support each other so that we win. Mm -hmm. And it's this sense of like, I'm sitting on the bench, not even playing, even if my little ego is pissed off that I don't get to play, but I'm rooting for my teammates even the guy who's playing my position that I want to play, but there's something bigger going on. And I know it's just baseball and it's not real life, but it's like that infused something in me that was like, okay, if we're part of this collective culture, what can I do to be a force for good in this conversation? And when we're talking about race or we're talking about gender, or we're talking about equity or we're talking about white supremacy, it's like, oh shit, these are really big and deep and I don't understand them completely and there's layers of them that I'll never get in this historical context and there's some stuff that is empathetic as I am and raised by a single mom who is a feminist and married to an amazing strong woman and the father of two daughters. I have no friggin' idea what it's like to walk around the world in a female body and have that experience. I never will. That doesn't mean I don't care. That doesn't mean I don't pay attention. That doesn't mean I don't listen and learn. That doesn't mean I don't stick my foot in my mouth and still say stupid sexist stuff sometimes without even realizing it. But it's like, I want to be in it together with my wife and my daughters and my late sister and my mother and the people that matter, but also just women on the planet. I want to be in it with my African-American brothers and sisters, not because I somehow think I'm going to white explain to them what it's like to be black <laughs> or what they should do. But because what can I do to contribute to this larger conversation that actually impacts all of us? And look, part of privilege is we get to opt out. If we, oh, it's so bad. I'm just going to change the channel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, I don't want to talk about this. It makes me feel bad. Or why does everyone get so mad? Or why does it always have I to be about race? Thing. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, can we just, can we just all like, I don't see color. Can we just all get along? And it's like... <laughs> Oh my God, I get that. I get it. But it's like, it's like Brene Brown said in her Netflix special, like choosing to not have conversations about diversity and inclusion and equity because they make you feel uncomfortable is the epitome and the definition of privilege. It just is. Now, it doesn't necessarily yes. mean you're a terrible person, and, but it's just, that's privilege right there, right in front it's of you. If you do, I, mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. It was the system that was created. Well, I want to touch on, on vulnerability because you, you mentioned it and you know, obviously it's a huge part of this larger conversation and you mentioned it in your book. So talk to us yep. about why this is so important just in general. Well, look, I think, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown and her work and have actually been talking about vulnerability and authenticity a lot for many, many years. And I think, look, my experience of it, again, from my own perspective, from my own background, it was a lot of um, playing sports, right? And, and just the act of going out. And again, it wasn't life and death, but it was like, oh, this is important to me and it's scary. And the better I got. So, I mean, imagine me, I'm a kid, I grew up, I play baseball, I'm pretty good at it. It's like, now I'm in high school and like, 
pro teams are scouting me. I get drafted out of high school by the New York Yankees. You would think, I would think, I would have thought, if you told me when I was 10 years old, hey, when you're 18, you're going to be like the star of the team. You're going to be drafted by the New York Yankees. I'd think, oh my gosh, I would probably be the most confident person on the planet. (laughs) And I'd also gotten into Stanford and got an opportunity to play baseball there. I'm 18 years old and I'm terrified Mm -hmm. every time I go out to pitch. Because now I'm not just Mike. I'm Mike, the baseball player. I'm Mike who got drafted by the Yankees and is going to Stanford. I'm supposed to be really good and I'm terrified inside. And nobody's talking to me about like, well, that's totally normal. I thought I was crazy. I just thought so maybe you never something... told any of your coaches or anything about how scared you were? Not really. It just, it literally never came up. I mean, that is not the way we are raised as yeah. men to be able to say, I feel scared because the moment, you know, from the way I was raised and look, I was raised by a woman. I was raised by a feminist woman who totally loved me, but my mom did not actually sit me down and say, honey, it's okay to feel your feelings. It's like, she didn't say that not because she didn't know that or care, but it's like, that's not how she was raised Mm -hmm. even as a woman, right? Even in the generation that my mother grew up in. And it was just this whole notion of anyway, and I'm not blaming her or the, it was just, sure. It's just the culture. Yeah. But I, you know, and I get to college and I end up, I'm doing well in school. I'm doing well in sports. I have friends. I have a girlfriend. My whole life looks like it's supposed to look and I get miserably suicidally depressed. And there's a ton of mental illness in my family. My father suffered from intense bipolar disorder for most of his life. And not only was I scared and debilitated by the depression as any of us are when we get depressed, I was also like, oh shit. I'm screwed. I have the family curse is literally what everyone in my dad's side of the family calls it. And I'm like, but it was this sense of as I'm sitting with a therapist and a psychiatrist at the student health center, freaked out. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I cannot be the only person with all of my now that I would call it and look at it privilege. Here I am at at literally, there's no other place on the planet I want to be. I'm winning the game of sports and school and I'm doing everything everyone told me to do to go be happy and be successful and I want to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Like, how is that possible? And what I started to really get more deeply in touch with at that time was like, oh, this is another place where I do feel like, yes, very different experiences, but we all suffer as human beings. We all deal with intense pain. And mostly in our world, for a lot of different reasons, and again, based on how we look and our race and our gender and our background, the access we have to deal with that is either limited or expanded. But it started to make me realize like, I want to be having deeper, more real conversations about what's going on with me. And I feel like we're doing each other a disservice in our world, not talking about what's real. And so I became, and I was already kind of this way prior to that, but I I became obsessed with like, I just want to tell the truth about my experience Mm -hmm. and I want to hear about other people's real experience. Like, I don't want to force you. I'm not trying to be all nosy up in your business, but the more I realized that I would share, this is how I feel. This is what's going on with me. The more other people would go like, really? You feel like that? I feel like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And it was like, that's the whole paradox of like, we look different. We project things onto each other. The assumption is, oh, and this is part of honestly why I think a lot of people have a hard time with the notion of privilege or when they hear that, it's like, you think my life's easy? You think it's like, and I don't mean this is going to sound weird, but it's like, you tell a lot of straight white men that they have white privilege and it's all like, most of them are in touch with, for better or worse, their pain, their fear, their suffering, their challenge, all of this. And they're going, what are you talking about? I like, I feel like shit a lot of the time, right? Or I struggle or I don't know what the hell's going on or I'm just trying to figure out 
But I think, again, all of us are in our own ways. And that's to me like vulnerability is about emotional exposure. It's about uncertainty. It's about embracing the reality that like most of us, as smart as we are, as much work as we've done, as much as we learn, we don't know what the hell's going on. And I actually think this pandemic has been a great reminder to all of us and humbling and painful and terrible, but really important of like, oh, I'm not in control here and I really don't know what the hell's going on. I think this pandemic has shown us just how vulnerable we all are, um, obviously yeah. at very different levels. And yes. yeah, no, I, I I love your story. I didn't know that about you. I had a similar experience in 2007 when I became a mother and hadn't written for over a decade and knew that it was my my real mm. vice. And I started a blog and was just like, I am, I felt like I was going to die if I didn't tell my story yeah. and just rip roared it out of my heart. And this was back when like nobody was knew who I was and wasn't reading my blog yet. And so people started reading it and I got, you know, the hands of like me too. And I'm yeah. also unfulfilled being a mother. I'm also overwhelmed and, you know, have past hurt and trauma and stories and hearing people's experience. You know, I, I think I was I was building a business around vulnerability for lack of a better term, like before it became a strategy. You know, now right. I'm like, don't do it on purpose. <laughs> like it's easy. Right. But it it was yes. never my intention to 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 build my audience that way. But it was it became very quickly obvious that people are just dying to be heard and to tell their stories. And also terrified at the same time to do it. Yes. It's scary. And I think, you know, two things that I think about in that regard, and I love hearing that and knowing that about you, because I think one of my spiritual counselors used to always say to me when talking about this, like, Mike, the truth can't be rehearsed. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be real. So that's why like vulnerability or authenticity as a strategy doesn't resonate because it's not real. It's a, it's, it's concocted. It's what can I say? Mm -hmm. It's Let me say this thing. And, you know, that's why it's not about the content of what we share so much as where it comes from. And the other part, I do believe though, to that end, and I don't mean to be sort of <laughs> contradictory about this, I'm a big believer in the more personal, the more universal. Mm -hmm. So when you share your story, I don't know what it's like to be a mother. I don't know what it's like to, you know, if we go into the depths of your story or my story, they're going to be very different in terms of the content of them, in terms of the experience of them. But what we get down to when we really get to that vulnerable human place, we get down to some basic human emotions. We all know what it feels like to feel joy and pain. We know what it's like to feel gratitude and sorrow. We know what it feels like to feel excitement and rage. And that's where it's like, again, not to oversimplify or whitewash our different and unique and diverse experiences. It's like, we can actually relate to each other at a really deep and human and emotional level, even if we have very different experiences. Because down below the waterline of the iceberg, so to speak, for us as human beings, we get to some pretty universal things. And, you know, that, it's that whole notion when we even we're talking about difference in race and it's like, you know, it's hard to hate people up close. Yeah. Because when you get really close to someone, even, and I've been trying to practice this the last few years, people I really disagree with, people I have significant issues with, I actually enjoy, as scary as it is, to get into conversation with them and to try to get curious. Why do you think that? Tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. I don't understand because I trust and believe underneath all of us, you know, we could argue and debate and get all self-righteous, mm -hmm. but underneath it, there's a human down there, just like I'm a human. And we probably have some similar feelings and some similar needs and some similar desires and some similar fears. 
that if we can get to that place, then we can at least have a conversation where we might be able to understand each other more and connect. That's why the world we live in right now to me gets so scary. What it's really easy for us to go to our little corners and you know, say all kinds of stuff on social media. And you and I go, yeah, yeah, we're right, we're right. And all the other people who agree with us, but it's like, I don't know if that's helping anything or anyone. Yeah, 100%. Um, I'm so glad you came on the podcast to talk about your book. <laughs> <laughs> we're all in this together. Hey, but that's what it's about though. Honestly, like my book and my work is really about having conversations like this. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. Like I'm actually not that interested in authenticity and vulnerability as like a concept. I think they're incredible concepts. I've been writing about them and talking about them and teaching for years. I don't really give a shit like from the conceptual perspective, what I do care about and what I appreciate about you and your work and us just having this conversation is can we have these kind of conversations with each other in a way where we get to share what we really think and how we really feel and connect with each other. And then that opens up a space for us to just talk more like this all the time. I feel like, you know, and and please everyone forgive me if this sounds like super just privileged and whitewashed, but it's like, I feel at the end of the day, like that could be the thing that truly makes us all be able to come together and have conversations and hear each other and maybe dismantle some of the systems that are so incredibly harmful is to, is to tell stories and truly listen to each other's lived experiences. Because I'll tell you what, I've been on hundreds of podcasts and the most messages I get in my inboxes on social media when people say, you know, I heard you on so-and-so's podcast is I could really relate to the story you told about, you know, your yes. divorce, the infidelity, the, you know, yes. special needs child, like all of these stories that I share. I don't think anybody's ever come to my messages and said like, I'm so thankful that you shared your three-step process for managing your inner critic, <laughs> which I'm not saying it's not helpful. Like it, right. when you get down to it, it is helpful for people, but I, yeah. but that's what brings us together. And it really just goes back to like, can we trust each other? Like, do I trust you with my time and my energy and my space? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And uh, I'm, I'm honored and grateful you had me on your show and that we got to have this conversation. So the book is, we're all in this together. What's the subtitle? I don't know if I caught that. The subtitle is creating a team culture of high performance, trust, and belonging. <laughs> that sounds like it was made by a publisher. No, that was fine. That was fine. But it's really is to speak to a lot of the teams and leaders that, uh, that I work with and, yeah, and no, who are struggling with those things. Subtitles are about telling the people what it's about. What? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Mike Robbins, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Where do you want to send people to read your books and follow you in all the places? Best places on our website, which is just mike-robbins.com. Mike-robbins.com. Thank you so much for being here, everybody. You know how valuable I know that your time is just is incredibly valuable. And I'm grateful that you choose to spend it here with me and my guests. So until next time, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. 